We are taking a really big chunk today in our journey through the book of Acts. We're going to be picking up in chapter 6, verse 8, and we're going to try to go all the way through chapter 8, verse 4, and I know that's like a lot for this setting, and I'm going to be reading a lot of verses, but I'm going to try to encourage you um, to have the right perspective on this. You know how your perspective can really change stuff sometimes? Like if, uh, if I'm going for a run and I think I'm going to run 10 miles, that feels really, really long to me. I don't ever do that anymore, by the way. I'm just saying that that would seem really long. But then if we're on a trip with the girls and we're going to the beach and it's been an eight-hour drive and they ask how far away are we and I say we're 10 miles away, that seems really, really close. You know, it's the same 10 miles, but it's totally different. So if you think today, hey, this is a re- chapter 7 is a really long chapter, and he's going to read a whole lot of verses, and he's even picking part of chapter 6 and part of 8 and adding them to that, that sounds really, really long. So here's how I want you to think about it instead. When we get to chapter 7, Stephen preaches a sermon to the Jewish Supreme Court. He's basically on trial, and this is the way he decides to defend himself on trial, is to preach a sermon. And in Acts chapter 7, he summarizes the entire Old Testament in one chapter. It's like the Cliff Notes version of the Old Testament. So those of you that do your Bible reading plan every year, and every year, if you're honest, you struggle getting through the whole Old Testament. You feel like you never can make it through the whole thing. This is your morning. You're getting the whole thing. So this is not a really long chapter. This is a really, really succinct, great summary of the whole Old Testament. That's what you're getting today. So that's our perspective, all right? And that really is what goes on in chapter 7. It really is the Cliff Notes version of the Old Testament. And so we're going to jump in here in a minute and read through this section. And it is because of the story, it's the story, the story of Stephen here in the book of Acts. And it all goes together, and I just didn't want to break it up. So I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to ask God to teach us by his Spirit as only he can. I'm going to pray that the Holy Spirit would be the master teacher right now, that he would be opening up our eyes and our ears and our hearts spiritually to see God and encounter God and hear from God. And then we're going to read this chunk Uh, out of the book of Acts, and I'm going to ask you to be listening first and foremost for what does this teach us about God, and I'd like for you to share some of those in a few minutes, the things that the Spirit causes to jump out at you and the truths about God that you see, and we'll talk together about some of those, about what God's showing us this morning, and then I have a few things I'd like for us to talk about as well, and maybe some of the ways this applies to our heart and the way that God wants to speak to us right now as his church and as his people. So that's where we're headed. Uh, If you'll pray pray with me right now, uh, we'll pray and jump in. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for the privilege of studying your word together in the Bible as your people. And Father, I confess that if anything of spiritual significance is going to happen right now, that I cannot do it, that I can't change my heart, I can't change anybody else's heart, that I do not have in myself the spiritual power or the spiritual resources that are needed, that I am not good enough or wise enough or powerful enough that I stand up here praying and asking for something that I can't do. And so I ask that you will teach us right now by your spirit from your word because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and because of the promises that he has made about giving his Holy Spirit to his people and his church, Father, pour out your Spirit during this time to teach us, to open our eyes spiritually to see you 
and to soften our hearts spiritually, to believe you and love you and trust you and follow you. Do this work that only you can do. We trust you to do it. We ask you to do it. And we thank you that you have given us the hope that you are doing it in Jesus and because of Jesus. And so it's in Jesus' name that I pray right now. Amen. All right, as we start into this story here, I did want to pick up Acts chapter 1, verse 8, just to remind you, this is like the theme verse for the book. Jesus says this at the very beginning, right before he ascends into heaven, and there's something today, a connection that I want us to see to our text that I feel like is really, really important. So Jesus told the disciples right before he goes up into heaven, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in, and then sometimes we hear Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And we have a tendency now, we're so far removed from that time and that location, that we do a lot of application with this. And maybe, and you can raise your hand here, if have you've heard this before in the church, people ask, what's your Jerusalem? Have you ever heard anybody ask you that? Okay, I see hands there. What's your Judea? What's your Samaria? Do you realize that Jerusalem is Jerusalem in this text? Like they're standing like outside Jerusalem and they're about to go back to Jerusalem and Jesus is saying, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and he means Jerusalem, right? Like right where they are, right? The actual literal Jerusalem. So here's the first place he mentions, Jerusalem. And then he says, and then in all Judea, which Judea is the southern half of the country that includes Jerusalem. Like Jerusalem's in Judea, but Judea is bigger than Jerusalem. So he's saying, spreading out from Jerusalem to all Judea, you'll be my witnesses there. Then Samaria is in the northern half of Israel. And so you're not just going to stay in the southern half because the south and the north didn't like each other at all. You know, it's just like it is here in this country where we don't like the Yankees at all. So even though you don't like them, you're going to go be my witnesses there. And you're going to tell these Israelite Yankees about me in Samaria. And then you're not going to stay just in Israel, not just with the Jews. You're going everywhere. All the non-Jews, all the Gentiles, all the people that you think are pagan and so far from God that there's no way that they could ever be God's people and there's no way that God would want them, he wants them. And you're going to go to the ends of the earth. And so these four places, from the very beginning of the book, Jesus has given this outline. In Jerusalem, you're going to be my witnesses. My spirit's going to come on you and I'm going to give you power and you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem. And in all Judea, the whole southern half of the country. And in Samaria, the northern half of the country. And to the ends of the earth, outside the country, everywhere in the whole world, that God is the one true God and Jesus is his son and this gospel is for everyone. So that's how the book starts. And just keep that in mind here as we read this section. If you remember now, the religious leaders are really, really pressing hard on the early church to stop talking about Jesus. They've already arrest, arrested some of the apostles. They've thrown them in jail. They've threatened them. They've beaten them. And now we get another encounter here between one of the, the leaders of the early church, Stephen, and these religious leaders who want them to shut up about Jesus. That's where we are today. So starting in chapter 6, verse 8, what's this teach us about God? And Stephen, full of grace and power was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and one of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God, 
And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council, and they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And I just want to go ahead and bracket that. This is the charge that they bring against Stephen, that when they bring him before what's basically the Jewish Supreme Court, this is their charge against him. Just notice it here. He speaks against this holy place, against the temple, and against the law. We've heard him say that Jesus will destroy this place and change the customs handed down to us. And this isn't all that's going on here. You know, the temple, the law, the customs handed down to us. But just notice that the thing they're most upset about is basically, in summary, Stephen says that Jesus will mess up our religious traditions. Jesus is a threat to the way we do religion. The traditions we've received, our temple, our place, our law, and all the customs that have been handed down to us, that they might change because of Jesus. So that's the, the charge that they bring against him. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. So this is Stephen's defense against that charge. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them for 400 years. But I would judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision, and so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of jo Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob his father and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so they would not be kept alive. At this time Moses was born. And he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. 
And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now when forty years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them, and now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god Raphon, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? That's the end of the uh, Cliff Notes version of the Old Testament there. Now Stephen turns to the crowd and says, let's examine our hearts for just a minute, if you want to talk in the terms we talk in sometimes around here. Let's examine our hearts, Jewish Supreme Court that has me on trial right now. You stiff-necked people, (laughs) 
uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. (laughs) Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. All right, I know there's a lot in there. Sometimes when there's that much, it takes, it's harder to pull out your truths than if there's just a few things. But what's that teach us about God? What stands out to you, jumps out to you as we're reading through that, truths about who God is? how he works, and I'll give you a minute to process. No, you all don't want me to talk the whole time, so what do you got? This is your chance. <laughs> I'm going to add one phrase in there if it's okay, and if it's not, you can tell me, but God doesn't seem to care that much about man-made tradition. And I just added that, the word phrase, man-made there, just because it's us coming and adding it into you know, our thoughts, our significance of this is what really matters. This is what Sometimes the things that God had said, there were things that God had told them that at one point had been the basis for what they were believing, but now they've added all their stuff to it as well. And yeah, I think you're right, that Stephen gets the full approval of God for the way that he is opposing them and holding on to their traditions. And let's talk about that more just a second. Somebody else was saying something, we'll add it into. Tyson, was it you?
Yes, so Tyson said the way we would think about defending ourselves, Stephen didn't even try for a second. And let's just take both of these and tie them in because I feel like it is. Like this just kept jumping out at me this week. And it's why, you know, here's their charge against him. This man is speaking words against this holy place, against the temple and against the law. For we've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And there's two things that I want you to notice about Stephen's response, like when he's supposedly defending himself. The first thing is he spends the whole time talking about God. Like, do you notice that? Like the whole thing is, here's what God has done. God called Abraham, and then God did this, and God did this, and God sent, said that he was going to send them into Egypt for this long, and they were going to be slaves for this long. But while they were there, God multiplied the nation, and then God, deli- God raised up Moses, and God delivered them, and God did this, and God spoke to David, and God spoke to Solomon. And like he spends the whole, like Stephen's defense is not about Stephen at all. His defense is literally, this is who God is. When you look at the Old Testament, which was their whole Bible at that time, he's looking at the Jewish religious leaders, and he says, when you look at your Bible, you should see what God has done. You should see who God is. And what God has done and who God is, that's the only defense, that's the only explanation for anything that I'm going to say or do. It's this great place, this God-centered view of the Bible, and for Stephen, a God-centered view of his life. But then specifically, what really, you know, they've, they've accused him and they raise up false witnesses, just like they did to Jesus. And they accuse him of saying, he speaks against the temple. And he said that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this temple. So they're real, real concerned with, he speaks against it. He's gonna, and so he takes the whole Old Testament, right? That whole long chapter that we read. The summary of the entire Old Testament and the application that he decides to pull out for them from the whole Old Testament is this. And remember the charge against him. He doesn't respect the temple the way he should. He speaks against the temple. He's saying Jesus is going to destroy the temple. And he says, all right, let me summarize the whole Testament for you. And now here's the thing you should take away. God does not dwell in houses made by hands. You think I speak against the temple? Here, let me make it clear for you. I speak against the temple. (laughs) Right? God does not need your building. He never has. He's like, yeah, they had that tent the tabernacle with them in the desert and they took it into the promised land under joshua and then david wanted to build a house and god wouldn't let him and solomon built one and god never needed it never has never will does it now as the prophet says heaven is my throne like he has all of heaven and the earth is my footstool he stands on the earth why would he need your little building what kind of house will you build for me says the lord or what is the place of my rest and so the best part is he stands in front of these religious leaders who know the whole bible and he quotes the bible to them and he says hey in the bible god tells you he doesn't need your temple i'm not speaking against your temple god is I'm not speaking against your religious traditions. God is. I'm not speaking against the the reverence that you give to this place that is not rightly directed toward God, but that's actually directed toward this place and this building. God's speaking against that. And so, yeah, God does not seem to care very much for man-made tradition. As a matter of fact, he directly opposes it and speaks against it. And Stephen, in, in a boldness that could only come from the Holy Spirit, like he knows They've already arrested Peter and John and the apostles. They've thrown them in prison. They've threatened them. They've beaten them. They've thrown them back in prison another time. They've threatened to kill them. Like he know, they've killed Jesus. He knows who he's dealing with. They accuse him. They are basically saying, the reason that you're on trial is for the bad things you say about the temple. And he's like, well, let me say a few more then. 
I mean, just make sure that we have a picture of what's really going on here. Like, I am not going to cater to your religious traditions and your love for this religious place when both things set themselves up against the truth of who God is and the truth of what God says in his word. Like, that's the, that's the clash taking place here. That's the conflict going on. They accuse Stephen, and Stephen says, I have two things to say in my defense. This is who God is, and this is what he says in his word about the religious traditions that you're so worked up about. That's his whole defense. You all want to pull some truths out of that and summarize it for me? Shout them out here because I don't really, I don't have that boiled down at all. Go ahead. (laughs) Anything else that teaches you about God or anything God's saying to you about you and about us? Say what? Yeah, a good truth about us. Humans will try to shout down, you know, drown out biblical truth. And not, hey, not those humans. These humans. Right? When God says things in his word, that don't line up with what we naturally think, that don't line up with the traditions that we like or the things that have made us comfortable or that we've gotten used to, we don't want to hear that, not naturally, not in our flesh. Like we will find any way we can to squirm around it or find a loophole through it or just to drown it out so that we don't have to hear what God's saying to our hearts the way that he wants to take this supreme place where he's God over your traditions. He's God over your preferences. He's God over your thoughts. He's God over your opinions. And he gets to define them or redefine them however he wants according to the truth of who he is and what he said in his word. What else stands out to you? Yeah. Stephen prays for the people who are killing him in that moment. And so a lot of ways we could say this, but one of them is that God's grace is for our worst enemies. That's the truth about God. And then a truth for us, an application for us is we should pray for our enemies. And of course, anytime you get a truth like that and you realize that it's exact words that Jesus says somewhere else, you know that you've interpreted that section of the Bible well, right? Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Jesus says that very thing in Matthew 5, and we see Stephen doing it here, and we said this is application for all of us. If your heart is being changed by the grace of God toward you, this is the way you'll respond to your enemies, to the people that hurt you the most, the people that you like the least. This is how God responds to those who set themselves up as his enemies. This is how he calls us to respond to our enemies. What else stands out to you? God is always with us, even in 
Mm. God is always with us even in troublesome times. I definitely want us to spend some more time on this here in a minute, but we see it right here. Stephen's been arrested on trial. That's already a bad day. But then they get so angry at him, they're enraged, they ground their teeth, and they're getting ready to throw stones at him and kill him. Right? They stoned him. And in the middle of all that, he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven, like God opens up heaven and lets him see the spiritual reality of what's going on in this moment that is bigger than just the the physical, natural reality that we can see with our own eyes. And he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing in approval at the right hand of God. Stephen's not alone in this moment. The, The hardest, darkest, worst moment of his life, the moment that ends his life, And Jesus is with him, with him, watching, seeing, knowing what is happening, approving. And God granting him grace in that moment to see the glory of God and see the approval of Jesus and to receive strength to die well. That God is with him in that moment. He's with him in the worst, hardest, most trying moment of his life to see him through it and to usher him into God's presence and God's glory. And in a sense, God gives him a vision that says, hey, this is worth it. It's God saying, I'm worth it. This isn't, in a lot of ways, this isn't your worst moment. This is your hardest moment in this life. This is going to be your best moment. Just because things are hard, just because things are dark, doesn't mean God doesn't see. It doesn't mean that he doesn't know. It doesn't mean that he doesn't care. It doesn't mean that he doesn't approve. It doesn't mean that he doesn't love you. Like He hasn't turned his back on Stephen. Stephen's not going through these things because he's done something wrong or because God's mad at him. God's right there with him. God is always with us, even in troublesome times. And I do want us to come back to that in a few minutes couple more minutes here. Anything else that you all see that you're like, hey, i, I got to say this. This is really standing out to me. Anything else about God or that God's saying to your heart? Yeah, we get a little foreshadowing here. And uh, we get Paul's story starting in chapter 9. So if you want, and just remember, like this is all one story. I know that Every week we have to break it up and take a certain section, and you all think that I take too big a section sometimes. It was because I really can't resist the fact that it's all one story, and you miss these connections. Um, when we talk about text in the Bible, let me take a real quick side note here, and then I'll write this down about the Apostle Paul. But when we text the Bible together, usually it's about a chapter in here, maybe a little more, and you, you can do less. Um, you can text a verse or a paragraph at times, and that's great to break the Bible down and study those sections that way sometimes for like more in-depth Bible study, but I also want to encourage you, another way to encounter God in his word is to sometimes read really big chunks. And, and especially, you know, if you can set aside two hours and read the whole book of Acts, 
You'll be amazed at the things you see when you keep this story together because it is one story and the, the connections that God pulls out for you and the truths that he reemphasizes over and over and over. And you can especially do that with some of the letters in the New Testament. Like if you don't want to start with a 28-chapter book, you start with Philippians. It's got four chapters. And read the whole letter because that's the way when Paul wrote it, he wrote a letter and then the church would read that letter out loud in a worship service. That's how, the whole, it wasn't, hey, we did the first paragraph this week and next week we'll do the second paragraph. They just read the whole thing. And sometimes it's really good for us to hear it the way it was written. And so, yes, right here we get this Saul approved of his execution. Like, we know Saul as Paul because his name changes when Jesus changes his heart. And it twice mentioned him. They, they laid their garments. You know, they were getting their throwing arms loosened up and the cloaks were getting in the way. And so they take them off and they put them at Saul's feet. Like, hey, watch this garment. That's more important to me than this man's life. I mean, it really is what's going on here. So they lay him at Saul's feet. Saul takes care of the garments and stands there and is like, I'm glad they're killing him. He needs to die. How dare him say this sort of stuff about our temple and our law and our religious traditions and how dare him keep talking about Jesus. That's who Saul is right now. He approves of the execution. This persecution breaks out against the church. And Saul, so the persecution breaks out against the church in Jerusalem. The church flees to get away from it. Saul's not content with, well, hey, we got them out of Jerusalem finally. Thank goodness they're gone. He's not happy with that. Saul was ravaging the church, entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and threw them in prison for believing about Jesus. And so just get the picture this week and let it set up what's coming in the story. This is who Saul is apart from Jesus. This is how much he's opposed to Jesus. This is how much he hates Jesus. And this is how he's acting toward Jesus. This, I know this is like spoiler, but most of you know this. When Jesus comes and saves him. Right? It's not like Saul has this moment, of, I'm sorry for what I've done. I'll start doing good things. If you'll just save me, I'll make it worth it to you. That's not how the gospel works. Saul hates Jesus. And is throwing followers of Jesus in prison. He's doing nothing to turn to Jesus. And Jesus comes and gets Saul. Jesus changes Saul's heart. That's what's coming. So see who he is here. And you know, after chapter 9, most of the rest of the book of Acts follows Paul around as he starts churches, plants churches, the whole ends of the earth thing that we looked at a minute ago. That's God uses Paul to do that more than anybody else. And this is who he is. Like, don't lose sight of who God uses to accomplish the promise of Jesus. The guy who deserved it the least, who was most vehemently opposed to Jesus, viciously opposing the church. God comes after people who are not looking for him and do not deserve it at all. This is the gospel. God uses people who have nothing good to offer God. 
There was not a single thing in Paul, Saul's heart that was said, hey, yeah, I deserve for God to call me and use me and make me the greatest missionary the church sees in the first century and that I, I will start more churches, plant more churches, lead more people to Jesus than anybody else in the early church because I'm this, this, and that. That's not this story. Like the only thing that Saul has that makes him useful to God is that Jesus comes and gets him. And Jesus changes him and Jesus rescues him from a spiritual blindness and darkness and hatred that is from hell itself. And Jesus pulls him out of that and says, I'll use you because I choose to. Like Jesus says, I'll use you because of who I am, not because of who you are. What else do you see? God is always at work fulfilling his mission. All right. And let's pull all... You do it every week, but you do it again today. Like everything that, uh, like, hey, we need to see this. You all say it. Let's go back to where we started. Remember this promise in chapter 1? Jerusalem, all Judea, Samaria, to the end of the earth. In the first seven chapters of Acts, do you realize where we've been so far? Location-wise? Yeah, only here. And here, in a great way, right? 20,000 was our guess in chapter 4, and then there was more people added in chapter 5 and chapter 6, faster than ever. So maybe there's 50,000 believers in Jerusalem. We, don't, we do not have a number, and the book never gives us another number. But still contained in Jerusalem, like this little seed of a church that hasn't sprouted yet and isn't anywhere near accomplishing Jesus' mission. Look what happens right here. After Stephen gets murdered, stoned to death, persecution breaks out against the church in Jerusalem. So there's Jerusalem. They were all scattered. Where did they go? Does that sound familiar to you? What's happening? This is exactly what Jesus said, right? You're going to go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria. We haven't got to the ends of the earth yet, but it's coming really, really soon. And so this, Stephen dying, like one of the bravest, boldest, most biblically-centered, God-centered preachers in the early church getting stoned to death by religious leaders and then a persecution breaking out that drives all were scattered throughout the regions. Like the whole church blown up. And by the way, this is the only church, right? You know, it's not like, yeah, friendship gets blown up. Well, there's 14 more up and down Lebanon Road. Go wherever you want. It's not like that. There's one church. The church in Jerusalem is the church, and that church is dead now. Persecution just annihilated it. Like, surely, to goodness, this is the end of God's plan. This is the failure of Jesus to build his church. Surely, to goodness, this is Jesus not keeping his promise, right? I mean, he's letting his leaders get killed. He's letting the whole church get destroyed. All of his followers are run out of Jerusalem. And then you look and you see, oh, no, hang on. 
This is Jesus doing exactly what Jesus said he would do. This is Jesus dislodging his church. And maybe, maybe it was because, hey, you're still huddled up in Jerusalem and I told you to go. (laughs) I'm going to get you out of Jerusalem one way or another. And yes, even when persecution comes, I'm still God over that. I am sovereign over that. I'm in control of that. And it won't thwart my plans and it won't stop my church. And now here they go exactly where he said they would go. Never the way they dreamed. I guarantee you when he said those words in chapter 1, they aren't thinking, well, a persecution will destroy the only church that exists, and that's how Jesus will reach the world with the gospel. But do you see? Do you see the wisdom of God? Do you see how when we look at this, we would know this only works out if God's the one doing it. No human being comes up with this plan. This is not the way we build something. We don't build it by destroying it. But when you have a gospel that is death in order for resurrection to come, this is what you do. But all of our hope is that Jesus died and then he came back from the dead. He was resurrected and now he promises that if we die with him spiritually, we will be resurrected with him spiritually. And so it really isn't that surprising. He says, here's what I'm going to do to build my church. I'm going to kill my church. I'm going to put my church to death. In Jerusalem, and then when it's resurrected in Judea and Samaria, you'll know it's still me. How good is that? And do you know how many applications there are for us today? How much hope this should give you right here today? You can't kill something when the guy in charge of it is able to resurrect stuff. You can kill it. But you can't keep it dead because they couldn't keep him dead. There is nothing that can stop the work of God in Jesus building his church. You kill the only church that exists and he resurrects a thousand. <laughs> right? You kill the church in one city and he reaches a whole nation. This is why every week I keep saying, well, we just believe that he wants to do things that you could never imagine. That he wants to use a whole bunch of people like you and me. Some of us Saul's who have been very self-righteous in our religion and religious accomplishments. Some of us, some of the apostles who have abandoned Jesus, run away from Jesus, hid like cowards and not done what we were called to do. Some of us, the early church, who was there screaming, crucify him, crucify him. And he would pick people like that. And he would say, I'm going to bring new life. New life to cities. New life to nations. New life to the ends of the earth. And I'm going to use you. This is who I've always chosen. Of course I'm going to choose you. You have my spirit. You have my word. Will you be my people? Will you be my church? Like, Do you see him accomplishing his mission in what looks like the darkest moment yet for the church? Like, make sure, just hear it again. There's one church, it's in Jerusalem. A great persecution breaks out against that church. All the believers are driven out of Jerusalem. So the church is gone from Jerusalem. And now notice one more thing. Except the apostles. This is the best part yet. So you've got these leaders, right? 
These men, handpicked by Jesus, they spent three years with Jesus. They were trained by Jesus himself. Surely, like if we're going to build the church, if we're going to fulfill the mission of God to reach the whole nation, Judea and Samaria, surely we're going to use the apostles, right? Because at this point, like they're the big dogs in the church. This is who Jesus would use if he's going to move from Jerusalem. Where do the apostles stay? Right? They're all scattered. All the believers are scattered throughout Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Do you get this? Right? The apostles are still in Jerusalem. I mean, I, I just I need us to see this. Do you see this? Everybody that you would think who would be the leader of the church, spreading the gospel, making Jesus known, the ones that are most qualified, they're still in Jerusalem. The whole rest of the church, the people that weren't with Jesus, weren't chosen by Jesus while he was on earth, all that stuff, the, the crowd that crucified Jesus, right? That's who's become believers so far. They get scattered out of Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria, which is exactly where Jesus wants them, which is where Jesus said he was going to build his church. And how does he do it? Those who were scattered went about preaching the word. These are people with no religious training, people who spent no time with Jesus, people who crucified Jesus, and they're the ones God uses to build his church when it leaves Jerusalem. Do you see how fascinating this is? I'm not going to use any of the guys that you know their names. It's not John and Peter and James and Andrew and Matthew. I'm not using them because you know their names now. And I don't want you to know their names. He wants you to know Jesus' name. And he's like, so I'll use no-name believers who crucified Jesus, and that's how I'll build my church. I'm telling you, he will use you. Here, in this country, the ends of the earth, I'm telling you, he's calling people out from right here to make him known in your home, in your neighborhood, at school, at work, to the ends of the earth. This is what he has done from the very beginning. This is who he uses and how he's poured out his spirit and now they go about preaching the word. That's it. He has given you his spirit and he has given you his word. We can be his church because that's exactly what he's called us to do. And he made a promise in Acts 1-8 that it's going to happen. So look, it's going to happen. Persecution can't stop it. Destroying the church can't stop it. Killing the leaders of the church can't stop it. And speaking of that, there was something we didn't hit on last week, and I really wanted to see it, and it ties in perfectly. So I went back and I grabbed something out of chapter 5 right here. So... If you were with us last week, you'll remember this. And if you weren't, I'll just give it to you real quickly. Ananias and Sapphira in the early church lie to the church. They sell a piece of land. They pretend they're giving all the money to the church when they're really not. And they deceive the church to make themselves look better. And the Holy Spirit tells Peter what's going on. Peter confronts them. And they both drop, down, de- drop dead in the middle of church. All right? So try to imagine that, by the way. That we start talking in here, examine your heart part, and... Somebody talks to somebody and one of us falls over dead in the middle of the service because we lied about something. All right? And great fear, this is Acts 5.11, came upon the whole church. Luke has this way of like, understating things that really makes me laugh sometimes. You think? Like they died in the middle of worship for lying. And great fear came upon the whole church. Yeah. 
and upon everybody who heard these things. So you've got two groups of people here. Make sure you notice this. There's the church, and then there's all these other people outside the church who heard what happened inside the church. So believers in the church, they're afraid now. Unbelievers outside the church, they're afraid of what's going on. The apostles keep doing many signs and wonders regularly among the people. They were all together. Now here, they were all together in Solomon's portico. So this is where the large group is gathering for church right now. None of the rest dared join them. Okay, remember your two groups of people? They were all together. This is the church, right? The believers. None of the rest dared to join them. So who's that that's not joining them? Right, the unbelievers. But the people held them in high esteem. So these unbelievers, they really respect the believers, but they're like, there's no way I'm coming to your church service because people die there. Right? Do you see what's happening here? So, we've got no unbelievers coming to church. No unbelievers coming to worship to hear Peter and John preach a sermon and have an invitation and call people down to repent and get saved. Right? No, nobody's there that's an unbeliever. What happens in verse 14? More than ever. Believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. There are no unbelievers coming to a large group worship service in a building, hearing a preacher preach a sermon about the gospel and call them to repent. None. Zero people are joining the church that way. Are we clear on that? And more than ever, people are coming to faith in Jesus. Now, we saw 3,000 people in one day in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 4, we saw that jump to 5,000 men, which we said was probably 20,000 people. It's not like they haven't had some big jumps. And Luke says more than ever believers were added to the Lord. I have no idea how many that is. But none of them are coming to know Jesus in a setting like this. So my question for you this morning is, how are these unbelievers coming to know Jesus? If it's not happening in here, where does it have to happen? Out there. And how do they hear out there? Because you and I leave from in here and we go out there and we tell them. Do you see that this is how the church is built? It wasn't, hey, we've got some big-name preachers now like Peter and John, and if we can just get everybody here, if we can attract them with big events and programs and, and a schedule and, and things that they'll like to come to, and then they can hear Peter or John talk about Jesus, we can get them. they're not showing up because they're scared to death they're going to die. <laughs> and all the nameless people who are part of the church are leaving the church and telling people about Jesus, and they're coming to faith in Jesus. They are being the church filled with the Spirit, taking the Word with them and making Jesus known. Like, do you see that this literally is the plan of God from the very beginning? Like, There's one church in the whole world right now, and here's how he does it. And then it's like, just, just to make sure if you didn't catch it in chapter 5, now he comes back here in chapter 8, and he's like, okay, leave my apostles behind, all the big-name preachers. They're not going on your persecution-induced mission trip with you. Right? We're, we're leaving them behind. Now you all go, and you take the word with you, and you be the ones who fulfill my mission to spread this everywhere. Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth, and it won't be Peter, and it won't be John, and it won't be James. It'll be you. 
Like, this is how he does it. No other way. And then, just, just to add it, since we talked about Saul this morning, he's like, and when it comes time for ends of the earth, I won't choose any of the ones that have been accepted by the church either. I'll take this guy who's persecuting the church, and I'll claim him as mine, and I'll send him. <laughs> I'll send the one who hasn't done anything for the church yet in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, and he'll go to the ends of the earth. God doesn't do it the way we would do it. He does it in a way that's so much better, in a way where we would look and say, only God can do that. And so, yeah, let, let a local body come limping out of a pandemic, trying to find its footing, trying to figure out, who are we? What are we supposed to do? Let the senior pastor leave. Call a teaching pastor with a shady past who stands up here and reads way too many verses every week. Seriously, let, let not a single piece of it look like it should ever work. But let the Spirit of God come and let us declare the Word of God and let's see what God does. Do you believe that? Do you believe that He might just do what He says? Do you believe that He might just do it the way that He's always done, that He's showed us over and over and over? This is how I do it. And so a few thoughts that stood out to me. I was thinking about Stephen here. When Stephen gets stoned to death, you think about that last moment for him. I know he sees the, the glory of God in heaven. He sees Jesus standing in approval. But for him, it looks like, okay, I was faithful. Right, right up to the last moment, I was faithful to God. I was faithful to Jesus. I declared the truth. I died, and then if you were to look at the early church, and the church gets blown up because of a persecution that I erupted with this sermon, right? And so you would think, it looks like Stephen was an utter failure at that moment. And then you keep reading, and you find out this was exactly God's plan to build his church in Judea, and, like to build the church in ways that had never been built yet. And so I just want to say this, like God is in charge of results. Like, if Stephen was really worried about results, like, what would be best for the church right now? We don't, we don't want to offend these people. We don't want to make them any angry. They're really powerful. They could oppose. Like, like, it wouldn't be good for the church if they killed me. It wouldn't be good for the church if they persecute us and drive us out. Like, if he was concerned about results, he never preaches like this. He's not faithful to the truth. He doesn't declare Jesus this way. He doesn't stand up and say, oh, oh, you think that I don't like your temple very much. God doesn't need your temple. Right? You don't do that if you think that everything depends on you. Like if you think that you've somehow got to manage all the results and produce the results and make it happen, you don't have the freedom to be honest and truthful and bold. If you know that God's in charge of the results, then we are just called to be faithful. Uh-oh, where'd we go? I have no idea what just happened. Hey, got it. We are just called to be faithful. That's it. Like every week when I'm saying, 
let's do this, let's be this. I'm not asking you. I'm not asking you to reach one person with the gospel. I'm not asking you to make one disciple. I'm not asking that a number will ever change in this place. I'm not asking that 10 years from now we'll still be in this building because we've been able to afford it all this time. I'm not asking anything like that. I'm just saying this is what Jesus says to his people. Let's follow Jesus. And if they stone us to death, so be it. If they take the building, so be it. And if God decides to launch a movement of his church that reaches people we haven't even thought about yet, so be it. Let's not talk about results. Let's talk about how faithful he is to keep his promises and let that stir up faithfulness in us to just follow him wherever, whatever it looks like. The other thing I would say right here is don't judge spiritual success. Two different things here. By what you can see and don't judge spiritual success too quickly. And I mean success or failure, like whether or not it's a success. You look at what happens to Stephen, and you're th- here's what we do Monday morning quarterback. Stephen, did you really have to be that confrontational? Did you really have to be that controversial? That wasn't very wise. Like, well, we, we need to be more tolerant, more understanding, more inclusive. Like we, we criticize people. We say, like, you, 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 brought, you brought this on yourself. Like you, you pushed too hard. You, I, I know that it was true, but, but you shouldn't have said that in that setting. And we criticize them because why? What we can see with our eyes and what we see initially is you got yourself killed and you blew up the church. And then you find out that Jesus is standing up in heaven. Pleased with what Stephen did. Approving of what Stephen did. Approving of the way the world rejected Stephen. And Jesus is accomplishing his very purpose for the church through what Stephen did. Stephen ignites the persecution that blows up the church outside of Jerusalem. So for the very first time, they're doing what Jesus told them to do in reaching Judea and Samaria. That's what actually happened. That's not what you see with your eyes. And that's not what you see immediately. The long-term work of God means that we just give ourselves to faithfulness and we trust him with the results and stop trying to pass judgment on whether this is working or not. Like It's not like, okay, all right, fine, Andy, you want us to try this for a while? Sure. Like We'll read the Bible with some people. We'll pray with some people. Hey, if this doesn't work in six months, what's next? There's nothing next, ever. This is it. This is what Jesus has said, and we're following Jesus This is who Jesus is. This is what Jesus is doing. There's nowhere else to go. Nowhere else to go. We'll just trust him. We already hit on this, but I just want to say it this way too. And I I know that you all have said this, but I just want you to notice when, when things are hard in your life, That does not mean God is angry with you. 
or that God doesn't love you. Stephen gets arrested and then stoned to death. That's hard. And we tend to interpret our life when bad things happen. Well, I must have done something wrong. God must not be happy with me. Why is God punishing me like this? That's the farthest thing from what's going on with Stephen right here. The full approval of God. The glory of God revealed to Stephen. Jesus standing in approval. God loving him completely, accepting him completely, welcoming him into heaven completely. And so I just want you to know, whatever you're going through right now, however hard it is, however dark it is, however much you're struggling, you can know this, God loves you in Jesus. God approves of you in Jesus. God is not punishing you because Jesus took all your punishment for you. Now, you may suffer the effects of a broken, fallen world. And you may suffer in ways that God uses it for your spiritual good and he shapes you and he deepens your faith and he has all kinds of good purposes to pull out of that suffering. But don't ever think for a minute that that suffering is God being against you. If you are in Jesus, if you are following Jesus, God is never, ever against you. Ever. He is for you. He loves you. And he will redeem the hardest and darkest things in your life. Like this is the hardest moment for Stephen. God is not against him in the hardest moment. God approves of him. And then God redeems Stephen's hardest moment so that Stephen has an impact on the church and Stephen has an impact on the world that he never would have dreamed. Like Stephen's death is the best thing that happens to the church. Stephen had more impact by dying than he did his whole life after Jesus. His whole life, the church stays in Jerusalem. He dies, and the church finally heads where Jesus has called it to go. Do you see that there? And then this last thing. You know, we've got these two pieces here. Stephen stands up, and he speaks truth boldly. Boldly. But then also, Tyson pointed this out at the very end. He prays for the people who are killing him. The, the people, like he has just lit them up. Right? Like he picked up the entire Old Testament and he was like, This is what God says to you. I mean, he did. Like, we can't, you can't minimize the tone of that sermon. Right? Here's the whole testament. All your fathers have always ignored God, and you stiff-necked people are doing the same thing. It's bold truth. And then, Father, do not hold this against them. Like in the middle of that, he loves compassionately. And I'm going to tell you right now that if you need anything in the world to make you realize that you cannot do this on your own, if you need anything in the world to show you how much you need Jesus, I dare you to try to do those two things at the same time without Jesus. The world cannot do it. You cannot do it. I cannot do it. Either you will veer toward, hey, here's all my bold truth, and let me just punch you over and over and over. And by the way, I hate you. I'll speak the truth to you, but I hate you. 
Or, yeah, I can, I can love people all day long and accept people, but, but we can't say that to them. That may offend them. That may hurt their feelings. We've just got to agree to disagree, and we can't confront each other. We can't call each other out. We can't talk about this stuff out in the open, and, and we just, we'll just all love each other, and, be, and there's no truth to it. Like, we'll be scared to speak the truth because it may hurt somebody we're trying to love, or we, we'll pound people with the truth because the truth is I don't love them anyway, so love's not going to get in the way of me. I, I hate them, and I, I really enjoy this part of it. But you want to do this at the same time? And I hope it feels impossible to you right now. I hope you feel like I, either you know, like I'm not a bold truth person. Like I'm not, I'm not going to say that stuff. Or you're thinking I'm not a love compassionately person. Like I hope you know that. Because then you sit here and you ask, why was Stephen that way? It wasn't because of Stephen. Let me find it. There it is. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit. Jesus made a promise to Stephen. And Jesus kept his promise to Stephen. He gave Stephen everything that Stephen needed to speak the truth boldly and to love people compassionately. And everything he gave was his own spirit. What Stephen did right here is not because of Stephen, it's because of Jesus. It's because this is who Jesus is. Jesus is better than Stephen. Stephen can do it because of Jesus. Jesus did it initially. Jesus set the pattern. Jesus hung on a cross and said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. For three years, he preached truth relentlessly until they finally killed him for it. And then as they killed him, Father, forgive them. He loved the people who were killing him. And now he's given his own spirit to Stephen, and Stephen can do this because Jesus already did it. Everything I've said to you this morning, everything I've said to me, you can do it because Jesus already did it. You can be this because Jesus has always been this. This can happen because Jesus is the one making it happen. Jesus is the truth. Speak Jesus boldly. And Jesus is love. Love with the love of Jesus compassionately. That is his church. If you remember Matthew 16 and 18 from a month and a half ago, gospel truth, gospel truth, boldly, boldly, relentlessly. I do not care how confrontational it seems. I don't care how controversial it is. There's nothing else to say but Jesus and Jesus and Jesus alone. Gospel truth and gospel relationships. Love compassionately. The people who yell at you and oppose you and disagree with you, whether they're religious or irreligious, whether they're inside the church or outside the church. They can be your enemies. It's fine. You can say, I disagree with you. I disagree with you 100%. That's not the gospel. You're missing it. Let me tell you again what it is. Do that. Do that over and over and say, this is what the Bible says. This is what the Bible says. This is what the Bible says. And that's all that matters. Do that over and over till the day you die. And also love those people and long for them to get it. And pray that God will soften their hearts. Pray that there'll be a Saul and God will do this. And he'll open his eyes and they'll hear the truth. Gospel truth and gospel relationships. Speak the truth boldly because of Jesus and love people compassionately because of Jesus. And when you say, I can't do that, good. Jesus can. Jesus has. 
Jesus gives his spirit to do this in you and through you, and it's exactly people like you and me who can't do it. That's how Jesus has built his church from the very beginning, and I promise you it's how he's going to build it to the day he comes back. That's my hope for us. I know he's going to do it. My hope is that we'll be part of that. And so I'm praying that. Will you pray that with me right now? Father, build your church by the power of your spirit. Fill us with your spirit that we will speak the truth boldly and we will make you known and we will bring people to Jesus and the truth of your word. And fill us up with your grace and soften our hearts that we will love compassionately, that we will love radically, that we will love in a way where we lay down our lives and we even love the people who take our lives from us. Thank you that that's who Jesus is and that's the way he loves us. Keep forming us and shaping us and building us and growing us into his people. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.